Well, yo, grace and peace, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of All Things Theology. Today, we're going to be talking about Seventh-day Adventism. Is it just another Christian denomination, or is it something that we should reject? I am going to be joined by Miles. Let me bring him on, man. It's good to see you, bro. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, good to have you. So, a little backstory for everyone. Miles is the reason why all things theology is all things theology. You see a lot of the upgraded graphics. Miles helped me out, so I am indebted to him. So if you like all things theology, go and subscribe to Miles. Miles, tell them where they can find you. Yeah, you can just type in on YouTube uh, in the search bar, answering Adventism, and the channel will pop up. Yeah, so uh, been enjoying his work. I think you will appreciate If you appreciate today's conversation, if you want more in-depth uh, content definitely go subscribe to him so let's let's get into it man so you grew up seventh day adventist so so tell us about that upbringing yeah so um i, I guess i'll preface before we get into that by saying because i know that adventists will see this and they're oftentimes inclined to say i don't believe that i'm an adventist we don't believe that Right. This discussion is not going to be about any individual Seventh-day Adventist. That's not what my channel is about either. Um, I care about the official stated beliefs of the organization. Hmm. So the discussion today is in light of the official organization, not any individual. And so um, I just preface with that. This isn't about any individual Seventh-day Adventist. But um, yeah, raised in a pretty standard Seventh-day Adventist house, um, aside from the fact that my dad is a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. So there's yeah. kind of a unique aspect there. Yeah. Um, I was educated in their, their schools, K through college minus high school. Um, and it was a pretty standard conservative Adventist household. Um, for the Adventists out there, they'll know what that means. Um, there's kind of like a few splinters or lanes within Adventism. So for those curious, I grew up in a very traditional conservative Adventist household. Um, and aside from... Uh, really just like the standard upbringing of things. Uh, I've always been a very introspective, deep thinker. And so I've never kind of been a halfway in, halfway out type of individual. I've always kind of been either all in or all out. And so I say that to say um, I was not a, a nominal Seventh-day Adventist, at least right. not for the, the entire duration. Um, so you were studied uh, and you knew the doctrine and were trying to uh, practice it. Yeah. And so, I mean, some of that's obviously going to come through. You're talking about like young ages, you know, sure. seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Um, I left Seventh-day Adventism for a stint and then actually came back to Seventh-day Adventist church um, okay. as, as an adult um, and began doing quite a bit of, of study on a lot of the doctrines and teachings. And we'll get into this a little bit more later, but mm -hmm. uh, not having the lens that I previously did um, from the Adventist church, uh, began reading the Bible and tried to study some of the unique teachings of the Seventh Adventist church, um, in greater detail and be able to really defend those from the Bible. And, um, that kind of opened the door to realizing that, uh, there's something different going on here. Was there anything in particular that, and we can get in this in later detail, but was there anything in particular that kind of was like, you know, you said, you know, it was ultimately the scriptures, but was it something that contradicted Seventh-day Adventism that was just like, wow, like, yeah, I can't stay in this anymore? Yeah, so uh, 
a little bit, I'll, I'll kind of do a, a flyover here because we don't want to spend too much time on this. I'm going to do a, a testimonial video on my channel um, in the coming weeks. So okay. I'll go into more detail on that. But um, I, I went through a little bit of a nominal phase predominantly because of the uh, staunch legalism that permeates their system. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was really no discussion around grace and what grace actually is, mm. um, what the gospel really is. Mm. Uh, and we'll get into the, the Adventist gospel later on. Um, but that produced in me essentially a level of nominalism that uh, I just said, well, I mean, no one's going to be able to live up to this standard. Right. <laughs> like right. if you're being honest, if you're a person who's being honest with yourself and you're not self-deceived, um, you're going to admit that you're not able to live up to that that standard. Right. Um, and so that kind of produced a little bit of a nominalism. Um, but I would have still said that I was a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, I, I would have been in this phase kind of like what you'd call Seventh-day Adventist light. Uh, I'm an Adventist, but I reject Ellen White. Yeah. Um, that, <laughs> that type. And so uh, I got to college and uh, a friend actually invited me to go to lunch one day. And I didn't realize what the conversation was going to turn into. Um, but this friend was a Christian and we were eating and he kind of just segued into, I mean, just straight up asking me if he could share the gospel with me. Mm-hmm. And I told him, you know, I'm a Christian. I know the gospel. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate that. But then he asked me, would you mind sharing it with me? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. uh, in, in doing that, what I presented to him was not the gospel. Mm-hmm. It was not what he was going to share with me. And so uh, after doing that, he presented me with, the biblical gospel, Mm. um, and walking through, uh, some of the scriptures regarding that. And I didn't, uh, make a profession like there on the spot. Uh, but that stuck with me for, well, still to this day, I actually messaged him a a couple months ago around Christmas time. I always message him and I thank him for that. Mm. Um, but that really is kind of what set the, the ball in motion just in terms of, um, that's actual good news, not what, I was raised to believe. And so that kind of got the snowball rolling. Uh, after that, I still was a little um, all over the place and confused, um, but had a pretty radical conversion about a year after that. And I remember that conversation with my friend, and that's where I really started studying the Bible um, in greater detail. Uh, read through the Bible cover to cover in a few weeks. I was like obsessed after being regenerated. I was like obsessed with the Bible. And so I read through the Bible and it was through that process there of mm. um, my initial thinking of why well, I need to go back to the Seventh Adventist Church um, because that's the true the true church. Mm. And so then in reading the Bible and studying, it became uh, very apparent very quickly that the Jesus of Adventism and the gospel of Adventism are not uh, in line with the Bible. Mm. Man, praise God for faithful Christians out there just sharing the gospel, man. And may that be an encouragement to our listeners to share the gospel and, you know, plant that seed because you never know when God may choose to uh, raise it up. But you mentioned Ellen White. So let's talk about that. Who is Ellen White and what is her role in the church? Yeah, so I'll read their uh, fundamental beliefs so that um, people don't think that I'm just saying my own opinion or whatever. So within Seventh Adventism, you have uh, essentially 28 fundamental beliefs is what they're called. Mm. And fundamental belief number 18 is titled the gift of prophecy. And it says, the scriptures testify that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is prophecy. 
This gift is an identifying mark of the remnant church, hmm. and we believe it was manifested in the ministry of Ellen G. White. Her writings speak with prophetic authority hmm. and provide comfort, guidance, instruction, and correction to the church. They also make clear that the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. So you'll notice there they're using 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, mm -hmm. but we're not in a fundamental belief about Scripture. Mm -hmm. So they will try and tell you, well, you need to read fundamental belief number one, which is the one about Scripture. And it, they use uh, Sola Scriptura in there to try and say, we hold the Protestant conviction of Sola Scriptura. Um, but but no, they, they don't. Um, they have their own idea of what that is. It's really closer to like the Socinians, hmm. um, which was a Bible only, a.k.a. we sat down with the Bible. This is the conclusion we came to. That settles it. Mm -hmm. So that's what the Bible teaches. It's mm -hmm. not uh, that... We do utilize tradition and history, but we understand that that is subservient ultimately to the scriptures. So Ellen White's writings speak with prophetic authority. They just changed that about seven years ago. It used to say that they are a continuing and authoritative source of truth. Mm. So with that in mind, you have to understand that all of their theology is downstream from Ellen. And I can read to you, if you'd like, kind yeah, of some absolutely. of the quotes that she... Um, so I'll just read to you some quotes, Chris, um, and you can, we can see how far you want to camp out on this one, but just to give the yeah. viewing audience an, an idea of, um, understanding where the SDA church is coming from and the place that this woman has in their church. So quote, this is from councils for the church page 92. Um, for those that are curious quote, I took the precious Bible and surrounded it with the several testimonies for the church. Testimonies for the church is a, uh, volume of books, I believe 10 volumes um, that she wrote amongst a plethora of other books. Um, and they are given for the people of God. Here said I, the cases of nearly all are met. The sins they are to shun, we pointed out. The counsels that they desire can be found here, given for other cases situated similarly to themselves. God has been pleased to give you line upon line, precept upon precept. End quote. Hmm. Um, another quote, Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 20, 1905, Paragraph 5. Quote, I have written many books, and they've been given a wide circulation. Of myself, I could not have brought out the truths in these books, but the Lord has given me the help of His Holy Spirit. These books, giving the instructions that the Lord has given me during the past 60 years, this is 10 years before she died, contain light from heaven and will bear the test of investigation. End quote. Hmm. Um, another one, letter 92, 1900. Quote, the Holy Ghost is the author of the scriptures and of the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy is a catchphrase that they use to, well, they, they pull it from Revelation, where it says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And they insert into that, that that is talking about the Holy Spirit, who essentially down through the ages inspired prophets. But internal lingo, everyone understands. When you say the spirit of prophecy, you're talking about the writings of Ellen White. So she says here, the Holy Ghost is the author of both the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy. Um, the Review and Herald, January 20, 1903. Quote, little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. Mm. 
So the lesser light is her. So that's the analogy that they love to say. They love mm. to say she's just the lesser light that points to the greater light, <laughs> um, which if you just think about it, makes absolutely no sense because <laughs> uh, why would you need, say, a flashlight when the sun is out? Right. It just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. It yeah. completely breaks down. Selected messages. Book three, uh, page 31, quote, the word of God is sufficient to enlighten the most beclouded mind and may be understood by those who have any desire to understand it. But notwithstanding all of this, some who profess to make the word of God their study are found living in direct opposition to its plainest teachings. Then, to leave men and women without excuse, God gives plain and pointed testimonies. Again, testimonies is not just always referring to that volume. It's also a catchphrase for the writings of Ellen White. Hmm. Bringing them back to the words that they have neglected to follow. So... The idea is if men and women, they love to say this, if people were just believing the Bible, Ellen said that you wouldn't have even needed her words. Well, yeah. And at the same time, she said that the Holy Spirit is the author behind both the spirit of prophecy and the scriptures. So uh, as you can see there, her writings um, are esteemed. They are um, a second source of authority. So it's not scripture alone. That's the only authority. You can read their fundamental belief and they don't say in there that it's the only infallible rule of faith. They say that it is an authoritative source that is infallible. That is because the writings of Ellen White are also authoritative. That's interesting. You, 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 and I'm, I'm sure you know this by doing apologetics for other, you know, faiths, other religions. There's a very similar aspect with this and denial sola, sola scriptura with like uh, Roman Catholics, Mormons. They'll, they'll give great heedance to the scripture as long yeah. as they can insert right? Their beliefs, their tradition, their, their writings along with it. Um, so does Seventh-day Adventism, they have you, um, Ellen, Ellen White as like the major prophet, like of their movement. Like she is like to what Joseph Smith would be. Absolutely. Charles Russell. Yep. And like Charles Russell to the Jehovah's Witnesses, Uh uh, same same exact thing. They're just going to try and code it in different wording, different language, but in essence, yes, it's uh, identical. Okay. Okay, and so, wow, that's very interesting. So, would so they they still claim to hold to sola scriptura, but you'd say fundamentally in practice it doesn't. They don't. They don't understand what that means, mm. um, because I still have the fundamental beliefs up here. So I'll, I'll go to that that first one okay. where it says this. So it's in big. It's in a big bold heading above the first fundamental belief, and it says upholding the Protestant conviction of sola scriptura, and then in brackets they put. Bible only. (laughs) These 28 fundamental beliefs describe how Seventh-day Adventists interpret scripture for daily application. Hmm. So the idea of sola scriptura to them is that um, we only use the Bible. And what that really means to them is um, they'll consult Ellen as the inspired commentator. Hmm. And essentially whatever she gave on any given passage, that ends it. So they'll say, see, we're only using the Bible, but they right. think they're getting some inspired insight into the correct interpretation of the passage because I don't have this brought up, but I have a video on my channel that people can look up. Um, it's a video called Yet Again, Doug Batchelor is Lying. Here's the proof. And we go over all of these, and every year after their annual council, um, which is essentially where their general conference president, the highest position in their church. Mm -hmm. Um, One of many things, he gives a a message to the leadership of their church. And afterwards, they always do a vote on upholding the um, 
the writings of, of Ellen White. So they always put out a statement. And in those statements, um, you know, they openly state that they correct uh, inaccurate interpretations uh, and they're essentially the uh, inspired guide to the correct understanding of scripture. So where did Ellen, Ellen White come from? Like what's, what's so special about her? Like what was, did she have a dream or a vision or like generally that's like some kind of focus on the, you know, person who starts like, Mm -hmm. so what's her background? Yeah. So uh, we could spend a whole podcast (laughs) just on this, but I'll kind of give a flyover. So um, they, they came out of Millerism. So during the second great awakening Mm -hmm. in like the burned over district like New York in the 1800s. And um, they were, we're not going to go too deep into like Millerism, but they were essentially a part of the Millerite movement. And William Miller basically did this crazy funky math and took a bunch of scriptures out of context. And basically anytime he could find numbers, he basically turned it into a time prophecy Mm. and came up with the idea that Christ is going to return in 1843. Um, And so I'm pretty sure it was between 1835 and 43 that all of that was going down. And when Christ didn't return, um, it shifted to 1844. Um, during the spring of 1844, a guy by the name of uh, Samuel Snow came up with this idea that it was actually going to be October 22nd, 1844. And October 22nd, 1844 came and went. Obviously, Christ did not return. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people in this movement went back to their previous churches. So it was an ecumenical movement. There was mm-hmm. Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, all sorts of um different denominations represented. Well, most of them, the vast majority of them, went back to their previous movements. And there was a small group called the Little Flock, um, and that's what the Seventh-day Adventists were born out of. And Ellen White, um, she was actually Ellen Harmon at the time. She was still amongst this, or she she wasn't married yet, so she still had her maiden name. Um, But she was amongst this Little Flock band of people that basically refused to accept that they were wrong. And October 23rd, 1844, the day after what was now known as the Great Disappointment, uh, a guy by the name of Hiram Edson was walking to meet with some of these other people in the little flock and claimed to have a vision while walking through a cornfield. And he claimed that the heavens were opened up to him and he was shown that Jesus was entering into the most holy place in heaven for the first time, Hmm. that they weren't actually wrong about the date they were wrong about the location and the event. So it wasn't that like, so Miller thought that Mm. Jesus was going to return in 1843 to cleanse the earth and that the earth was the temple. They used Daniel 814 for this. This is like their pillar text. Mm. Um, After 2300 days, then Christ or then, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. They say that, well, because that it's talking about the time of the end, it has to be referring to a period Uh, It couldn't be a period from the past. It has to be a period essentially toward the end of history. And so, uh, and that there's not a physical temple standing anymore. So it has to be that it's referring to this heavenly temple. Hmm. And so this is where this investigative judgment doctrine and stuff comes from. Well, that then got circulated. He met with a guy named O.R.L. Kreuzer. He wrote this down and then it was published in a paper um, at the time or periodical called The Day Star, which was essentially a Millerite paper. Um, and that's kind of where this idea started. Well, this little flock refused, like I said, to accept that they were wrong. And so um, with this sanctuary and investigative judgment teaching in mind now, um, they continued studying the Bible. 
Well, you can read, I believe it's early writings, page 74. Don't hold me to the page, but I know it's in early writings. Um, she essentially says that the way that it worked, so her role, um, they would sit down in a group and the men would basically be studying the scriptures and they'd be wrestling over various interpretations. And um, when they would come to a point where they didn't know the correct interpretation or there was disagreement amongst them, Ellen would conveniently go into like a vision or a trance mm -hmm. and she would be shown the correct interpretation. So she admits her in her own words that um, she was essentially dumb. She says that she was sitting there. She couldn't understand pretty much anything that they were saying. It made no sense to her. But then when they would get hung up, she would apparently go into these visions and that would give her the correct interpretation and understanding. And that then put the stamp of approval on the teaching. So that's wow. essentially how she is cemented into the movement. She, there's a lot of critics out there that have a um, misunderstanding and Adventists will love to pounce on this. Um, they'll say that, you know, a lot of these teachings are originated by Ellen White. She didn't actually originate any teachings. Um, she was just the vehicle that God was supposedly using to put the stamp of approval on this. And they want to say, it's just, it's no different than uh, the New Testament gift. That, they're not cessationists. So they'd say it's no different than the New Testament gift of prophecy. So that's essentially her function. Okay. So, man, I'm just listening. And I'm, like I said, I see a lot of similarities with different movements. So Mormonism, yep. when Joseph Smith first started, that very similar. He would kind of go into these trends like, you know, uh, look into the seer hat. Right. Um, so when Joseph Smith was, uh, you know, in his day, he was very loved. Right. Had a huge following. But Mormons today yep. seem to kind of be willing to admit him being wrong in a way that they weren't willing to do so in the beginning. Is there a similar, how, like how do, how do seven day Adventists view Ellen White now? Well, and it varies, man. And this is what's so almost comical with all of this is they want to say that, which we're not going to go off on this, but they, they like to throw the term Babylon around and they use revelation 14 to say that Protestant churches of the day are Babylon, which is a, a representation of doctrinal confusion and so they love to throw that that label around to people like you and I, who mm -hmm. just in passing real quick for the Adventists that are listening, uh, Chris is a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. Uh, we have differences, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you, because I know the confession he holds to, I guarantee that we have more doctrinal unity than you guys do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, but I digress. Yeah. Uh, that, it's going to be a mixed bag depending on who you talk to, because gotcha. there are who would say they're like liberal Adventists, the mm. California Adventists. Mm. They're kind of like the, oh, it's just all about love. We just need to love everyone. You'll get people that are uh, staunch on Ellen White in that vein. You'll get people who aren't. Mm. Uh, it's a mixed bag. The official position of the church, though, is what I read to you. So take that for what you will. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be a mixed bag with, okay. with seven damages. Now, there's going to be people, too, who in trying to uphold her, they're going to try and defend the false prophecies, the contradictions and all of that stuff. And so um, they have apologists that essentially try and do that sort of thing. And so it's pretty, pretty telling when they're one of their arguments, for example, is to point to um, old Testament prophets and try to find areas where they were wrong to yeah. say, see, it's a, it's a clever way that they found to elevate Ellen and diminish the biblical writers. It's, it's so they don't. Yeah, go, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it's because they you also have to understand too. They don't believe in like plenary verbal inspiration. Mm. They did. Um, until a bombshell was dropped in the 80s mm. and a bunch of plagiarism was 
evidenced basically and gotcha. surfaced and became a whole thing. And so their position on inspiration changed. They hold to a theory called thought inspiration that the words are not inspired. It's the writer and God impresses upon them the thoughts he wants them to have. And then they use their own words. Mm. So they'll say, well, because it's, you know, they use their own words. Um, sometimes there's going to be errors amongst the words. Wow. But the general idea and concept is still correct and in, in there. So it's those sorts of things that they try to do to gotcha. to justify. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, right? They they admit some, as you said, will admit, right, this false prophecy, but they try to drag the biblical writers down with them and it's like, see, yeah. this false prophecy in the Bible too. So we're no different, you know? So very yeah. interesting. Um, well, not just that, but it, just real quick. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. The things, the things that they'll point to as well, Adventist, you guys have to understand, Ellen said that her words, I didn't read these quotes, but again, these are on my channel. I'm happy to post these in the mm -hmm. comments. I have a plethora of them. Ellen said that her words were barricaded by a thus saith the Lord. Mm. Ellen said that the same author of scripture, fundamentally, the Holy Spirit, was behind the spirit of prophecy. So mm. find me a place where any biblical prophet said, thus saith the Lord, spoke on behalf of God, and then did so falsely. I'll give you a hint. It didn't happen <laughs> right. because the prophets were living under a mosaic law where something like that was punishable by death. And that's actually what the first commandment's actually about. Yep. It's not just about using the name of God loosely. It's bearing the name of God and speaking on behalf of God falsely. And so right. you're not going to find the, the Old Testament prophets saying every word that I wrote, every word that I, you know, it was authored by the Holy Spirit, barricaded by the say of the Lord. You're not going to find it. Absolutely. So let's let's shift into this, right? We kind of we spent time on Ellen White and the, her role. Who is the Adventist Jesus? Is it the same as you know Protestants? What me as what we would hold to? So let's get in. Let's shift into that. Who is the Adventist Jesus? I, to me, this is like really important. Like uh, yeah. two two questions are generally important when I'm dealing with something I'm not you know generally uh, knowledgeable about. Is what do you do with Jesus and what do you do with the gospel? So let's talk about this yep. first aspect. What do they do with Jesus? Yeah, so, um, oh boy. So the Adventist Jesus is, um, oh, well, I'll just, I'll do the same thing I did before, and we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. I'll read to you. This is what Ellen White said about Christ. And again, you have to remember from the official standpoint of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, this is taken as truth. Hmm. Quote, from the spirit of prophecy, which is also, so that phrase can refer to all of Ellen White's writings. They can be talking about supposedly the Holy Spirit inspiring the prophets down through the ages, or it can refer to a volume set. So this is from the volume set, the Spirit of Prophecy, volume one, page 17. Quote, the great creator, talking about the father here, <laughs> assembled the heavenly host that he might in the presence of all the angels confer special honor upon his son. The Son was seated on the throne with the Father, and the heavenly throng of holy angels was gathered around them. The Father then made known that it was ordained by himself that Christ, his Son, should be equal with himself, so that wherever was the presence of his Son, it was also to be his own presence. End quote. Another quote, Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 2, page 9. This quote, The Son of God was next in authority to the great, lawgiver, that's the father. 
He knew that his life alone could be sufficient to ransom fallen man. He was of as much more value than man as his noble, spotless character, and exalted office as commander of the heavenly host were above the work of man. He was in the express image of his father, not in features alone, but in perfection of character. Close quote. Mm. Quote, The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 48. Satan again rejoiced with his angels that he could, by causing man's fall, pull down the Son of God from his exalted position. He told his angels that when Jesus should take fallen man's nature, he could overpower him and hinder the accomplishment of the plan of salvation. Close quote. Hmm. Quote, this is from Lift Him Up, page 253. There is no one who can explain the mystery of the incarnation of Christ, yet we know that he came to this earth and lived as a man among men. The man Christ Jesus was not the Lord God Almighty, hmm. yet Christ the Father, yet Christ and the Father are one. The deity did not sink under the agonizing torture of Calvary, yet it is nonetheless true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Close quote. Adventists there will try and say, no, 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 during her day, which this is a ridiculous argument and justification. Again, this is supposed to be from the Holy Spirit. They'll say, no, 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 the Lord God Almighty is a term she used for the Father. She was just differentiating him from the Father. No, unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Quote, the desire of ages, page 112. This is arguably one of her most uh, famous books. These, uh, sorry, started a little bit too late. Quote, this one's a little bit long, but mm -hmm. I, I don't want them saying, oh, you're just you're just quote mining. You're taking her out of context. No, folks, I've read all these things myself. I have a, a document here of 70 some odd pages of quotes. Quote, of the vast throng at the Jordan, few except John discerned the heavenly vision. Yet the solemnity of the divine presence rested upon the assembly. The people stood silently gazing upon Christ. His form was bathed in the light that ever surrounds the throne of God. His upturned face was glorified as they had never seen or, or never been never before seen the face of man. From the open heavens a voice was heard saying, "This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased." These words of confirmation were given to inspire faith in those who witnessed the scene and to strengthen the savior for his mission. This is her commentating on the baptism of Jesus. Notwithstanding that the sins of a guilty world were laid upon Christ, notwithstanding the humiliation of taking upon himself our fallen nature, the voice from heaven declared him to be the son of the eternal. Close quote. Let me read another quote to you. Sorry. Quote. This is from The Desire of Ages again, page 753. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present in him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror, or tell him, that the, tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Mm. Close quote. I could go on yeah. and on and on. 
the Jesus of Adventism was a man with a fallen, sinful human nature who came to earth to be the way shower. What they mean by that is Christ came to vindicate the law of God. I'm going to read something to you here shortly because you're going to have to understand this to understand their whole paradigm as to why Jesus came, why is there evil in the world, what is the nature of Christ. Um, this is the whole fountainhead of, of their teaching. But just quickly on who the Adventist Jesus is in summary, a man with a fallen sinful nature, he veiled his deity upon incarnation, so the canonic heresy, kind of like Bethel Church teaches, while on earth he was only a man. That's what I was going to ask he about. He is not... He is not equal with the Father in all regards. They believe that the Godhead essentially consists of three persons who are three individual beings. Mm. Yes, those are Ellen's words. I'll read the quote to you right now because Adventists love to say, she never said that. Mm. Okay. Wow. So tritheism in some sense. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, wow. Yep. Um, do, 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 do. Sorry. I'm just trying to find this here. Yep. So here it is. This is Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 21, 1906, Manuscript 95. Quote. It's a little bit long, so pay attention here, folks. Here is where the work of the Holy Ghost comes in after your baptism. You are baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You are raised up out of the water to live henceforth in newness of life to live a new life. You are born unto God and you stand under the sanction of the three, or sorry, and you stand under the sanction and the, and the power of the three holiest beings in heaven hmm. who are able to keep you from falling. You are to reveal that you are dead to sin. Your life is hid with Christ in God, hidden with Christ in God, wonderful transformation. Then she quotes Colossians 3.3. 3. This is the most precious promise. When I feel oppressed and hardly know how to relate myself toward the work that God has given me to do, I just call upon the three great worthies and say, you know, I cannot do this work in my own strength. Hmm. Close quote. Wow. So <clears throat> another quote, Special Testimonies, Series B, 751, on page 617. Quote, we are to cooperate with the three highest powers in heaven the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these powers will work through us, making us workers together with God. So, no, when they say that they are Trinitarian, they do not understand Trinitarianism. They are tritheists. They believe that Jesus was exalted to be made equal with the Father at a point prior to the creation of the earth, mm. but from eternity past was not always equal with him. Mm. He could have sinned, he took on a fallen, sinful human nature. The devil was able to twist his heart, Chris, causing him on the cross. That, that quote from Desire of Ages, page 753, mm -hmm. was her commenting on what was supposedly going on internally with the Son of God on the cross. Wow. He doubted that he would be resurrected and that his sacrifice would be accepted before the Father because Satan was able to cause him to doubt. So no, the Jesus of Adventism is not the Orthodox historic biblical Jesus. Okay, so if he doubted, how is that not him sinning? It is. Exactly. Yeah. It is. I mean... <laughs> so look it up for yourself, folks. Wow. Adventists, you can try and say I'm taking this stuff out of context, but anyone can look it up for themselves. You can go egwwritings.org. That's the official run by the White Estate. 
her estate in California. It has all of her writings on there. You can just type in any section of that phrase or just put in DA for Desire of Ages 753. You read it and you tell me if that's what's being said or if I'm taking things out of context. Yeah. So you, you it seems like you were making a reference that um, they don't have a view uh, similar to ours of substitutionary atonement, but more so of right demonstrating how to live. Is, is that correct? Well, they're going to say that they believe in substitutionary atonement, but the key difference there is, is it's not penal substitutionary Correct. atonement. Correct. That's the kicker because they're going to be, they're going to say, no, no, we believe Jesus was our substitute. But let me read this first, Chris, before we get into that, because okay. you have to understand that this is the fountainhead for all of their theology, as you're going to see. And it really is. And this fountainhead is actually downstream from the source, which is Ellen White. So she has a book called The Great Controversy. It's arguably her most prolific book. Um, they have circulated, actually, speaking of which, um, their goal this year is to circulate 1 billion copies, both physically and digitally, of this book in 2023. That's wow. their goal as a worldwide church, is to get this book out there. Um, and it's called The Great Controversy. But mm. The Great Controversy is also a paradigm. It is not just the book. So I'm going to read here. This is from a copy of Ministry Magazine, December edition, from the year 2000. This is written by a man by the name of Herbert E. Douglas. He has a PhD and he was the president of the Weimar Institute in California, which is an Adventist institution. So he says, quote, for Seventh-day Adventists, the great controversy theme is the core concept that brings coherence to all biblical subjects. It transcends the age-old divisions that have fractured the Christian church for centuries. It brings peace to theological adversaries who suddenly see in a new harmony the truths that each had been vigorously arguing for. Herein lies the uniqueness of Adventism. That uniqueness is not some particular element of its theology, such, a, such as its sanctuary doctrine. Rather, the distinctiveness of Adventism rests in its overall understanding of the central message of the Bible that is governed by its seminal governing principle, the great controversy theme. Every philosophical or theological system builds on a central governing theme or paradigm. Its central theme becomes the system's core truth, and it determines all of that system's principles and policies. Stephen Hawking, the remarkable Cambridge physicist, wrote in his 1988 book, A Brief History of Time, that should scientists discover the long-sought theory of everything to explain the varying mechanisms of the universe, quote, we should know the mind of God. Seventh-day Adventists have been given that a perspective which provides a theory of everything. Mm -hmm. So he says Adventists have been given what Stephen Hawking was looking for, mm -hmm. a theory for everything. It introduces us to the mind of God. We didn't discover this. It, it was given to us. We call it the great controversy theme. How we understand this core theme directly affects, now listen folks, how we grasp the intent of biblical writers when they used words such as righteousness, salvation, gospel, etc. The great controversy theme helps us to work our way through centuries of theological confusion over the meaning of such realities as justification, sanctification, atonement, obedience, and works. Without the great controversy theme, 
all would remain divided over such subjects as the importance of the Old Testament sanctuary service and the New Testament view of Christ as our high priest, the meaning of faith of grace or the meaning of faith and grace, the place of obedience in relation to legalism, why Jesus came the first time, why he came the way he did, and when he will return. Close quote. So this is not some secondary thing. This is not something that you can just, oh no, no, it is their systematic. It is the way that they define terms that it's all seen through this great controversy theme. So to understand this in a nutshell, because it's vast, Ellen White claimed to be given her great controversy vision, which revealed this stuff. So I read a quote from it earlier when I talked about the father drew the host of heaven together to let them know that he was essentially exalting the son to be made equal with himself. This is from this great controversy, this great controversy narrative, excuse me. Her essential teaching is that prior to the creation of earth, there was a whole host of things going on in heaven. There was like a bunch of stuff that had, had already happened prior to the creation of earth. Mm. And one of those things was this exaltation of Jesus to be made equal with the father. And in doing so, this caused Lucifer to become jealous. There is argument on this. We're not going to get into this because this is a side discussion and Adventists hate when we bring this up, but mm -hmm. them's the facts, Jack. Um, it's, it's often a lot of the old paths Adventists will admit this. Um, it's this idea that Jesus is an eternally existent angelic being next to Satan. Satan was rather next to Jesus. Mm. And Jesus was exalted to be made equal with the Father, and this caused Satan to become jealous. So mm. if you want to read this in more detail, just go to Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, page 17, which is titled The Fall of Satan. So just start there and wow. just read. And that's the start of this supposed controversy. So Satan began, became um, jealous and started spreading all sorts of rumors in heaven. One of those is that the law of God is unfair. By the law, they mean the Ten Commandments. So whenever you hear them say the law, they are referring to the Ten Commandments. They believe the Ten Commandments are eternal, that they are what governs heaven. So the angels are keeping uh, the Ten Commandments in heaven. Um, and Lucifer began spreading doubt regarding this, saying that God's law is not fair, it can't be kept, etc. Well, then she says that uh, God had to figure out what he was going to do now that this was, was happening. And so a war broke out in heaven wow. between Satan and his the, the angels he was able to convince and deceive. And in doing so, he, they had to be kicked out of heaven and banished. So then you get to the creation of earth in her narrative. And Satan comes to the earth and she gives all these supposed insights into what Adam and Eve were thinking and all this stuff. Satan was able to deceive. Uh, she says actually that both of them were deceived, even though Paul tells us in 1 Timothy that Adam wasn't deceived. She says that uh, Adam was deceived. Mm. Um, and upon the fall of man, essentially Christ had to, uh, well, not just Christ, the, the father and Christ entered into council. And she says that uh, after trying to convince the father after three times that he would be the one to come and redeem man, the father accepted. So it, it wasn't necessarily the plan from the foundation of the, of the world um, wow. from, from all eternity past. Um, 
Jesus had to convince the father that he would be the one to come and be man's substitute. So I say all of that. I know that was a lot, but I say all of that because that informs their understanding of why Christ came. Christ came to vindicate the law of God against the accusations of Satan. This whole thing in their mind, the great controversy, is about God vindicating himself. God is basically beholden. He's like a hostage to the accusations of the devil. So he has to do all these things, the investigative judgment, the atonement, all these things, because it's essentially to vindicate himself from the accusations of the devil. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty, uh, that's pretty wild. Uh, so I, I have a question, uh, cause you know, we're talking okay. about the son, we're talking about Jesus. And if you need time to, to look this up, that's fine. But what do they do with the Holy spirit? What do seven Adventists believe about the spirit? Is the, is it the same as what we would say or Protestants? Because yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious now that we're on this topic. Yeah, so historically, um, the Holy Spirit, so the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church were Arians and semi-Arians, mm -hmm. so that's important to know. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until a significant period of time afterward that they started to kind of evolve on that, um, and with that came their understanding of, say, pneumatology, the Spirit. Um, they would say that initially they said that the Holy Spirit was really just like an energy and a force that proceeded from the Father and the Son. Um, they've shifted on that now, and they do say that the Spirit has personhood. Um, but again, you get into the issues of um, different being, right. um, different person. So it's not, uh, they're not one in substance, essence, state of being. They are one in their mission and their purpose. And so the Holy Spirit's role, they believe, is um, Jesus sent the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to now empower you to do something you weren't previously able to do. So they would say that Israel, you know, failed and they weren't able to keep the law of God. They didn't have the spirit like we are given the spirit. Um, now that Jesus has paid the penalty for sin, um, he sent the Holy Spirit afterwards, who now will, through the help of both the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they work together like a team. That's what their uh, official beliefs say on their Adventist.org slash Trinity page. At the end of it, it says that they work together like a winning team. So alongside the Holy Spirit, he will essentially empower and enable you to keep the, the Ten Commandments perfectly. So you brought up, uh, I forget the gentleman you just quoted, but he referred to the Stephen Hawking, the everything uh, theory yeah. as, as Seventh-day Adventists now having and possessing that. So prior to Seventh-day Adventism, do they believe that every church was false? Because uh, I know Mormonism early taught that as well. Yeah, so they wouldn't. They don't like to consider themselves part of like the restorationist okay. churches. Yeah. Um, but but they are. Right. <laughs> uh, fundamentally, they are. Um, basically, the way that they have gotten around this, because I know that people ask, okay, well, where was the church prior to you guys? Right. They have a theory called present truth, and it's basically just a, a trump card for them to always be able to pivot and get out of any sort of scrutiny or hard hard spot. And so they would say that the previous generations had a present truth that they had to live up to. So Ellen in her book, Great Controversy, when she's talking about Luther, for example, during the Reformation, she says that the present truth that he basically had to live up to in his day was sola scriptura. So like they were true believers. They just didn't have the full revelation of light. The Adventists think that they are like the principium 
there's no more there, there's no more questions no more learning no more nothing mm. um there is learning in the sense of like yeah grasping the things that ellen said and and that type of thing but it's the creme de la creme it's the cream of the crop it's the fullest now revelation of truth they think that they are a continuation of the reformation which is mm. laughable mm. um but they essentially think that the reformers stopped reforming they've continued reforming and so the reformed churches still had roman paganism intermingled with them and so they uh just continued re essentially reforming and it's that continual reform that has now brought this further light that was lost and it really gets into i'll bring them up here really gets into this their seven pillars um the seven pillars of their beliefs which they believe that these are the things essentially previously that um people have had lost. They think that they are primitive Christianity. <laughs> um, so they think the church looked like they do. Um, oh, and that wow. basically almost immediately, like second century, it just completely went awry. Um, but their seven pillars are their health message, the state of the dead, which they don't like to use the term soul sleep. They think that that's a Jehovah's witness term, but it's essentially soul sleep. Um, the spirit of prophecy. So that when they say that again, the writings of Ellen White, the sanctuary doctrine, which I mentioned in that that little write-up on the great controversy, which is their, their investigative judgment teaching, um, the law of God, and specifically the Seventh-day Sabbath, um, the victory over sin. So they'll use the term a prepared people. Christ is coming back for a prepared people. It's just a way that they found to say uh, sinless perfectionism. Mm. And then uh, righteousness by faith. And that doesn't mean what you and I know that to mean. Right. Um, so those are essentially their pillars that they think were things that were restored um, and essentially given to them in a full and clear understanding. Mm. Okay, interesting. So let's let's shift here. So um, Seventh-day Adventism, what is the gospel for a Seventh-day Adventist for, you know, according to uh, what's been articulated in their doctrine? Um, what would they say is the gospel? Well, really, it's if you ask them, you're going to get this, those seven pillars. Mm. Um, they think that those things are really um, what make up the gospel. But uh, more specifically, it would be the three angels' messages. So mm. they love Revelation 14, where it talks about three angels. And it's interesting, they cherry-pick three when there's a ton of angels in Revelation. <laughs> but um, they, they pick the three at the beginning, and it's really this idea of the first angel brought of the hour of his judgment is here. So they say that that was referring to Miller and this proclamation of um, the, the time of judgment essentially coming. That eventually shifted, obviously, to the investigative judgment, of which William Miller never accepted. Um, he went back to being a Baptist. Um, but that first angel's message is essentially this idea of the sanctuary teaching and the investigative judgment, of which Ellen said, if you reject, you've rejected the faith. So that's angel one. Angel two is essentially the call to come out of the supposed apostate Protestant churches. We kind of touched on that a little bit earlier. That's what they, when they see Babylon, that's what they mm. equate Babylon to there is that it's the doctrinal confusion amongst all the Protestants. Mm. Um, and then this third angel's message is essentially a call to keep the seventh day Sabbath. So, that's why when you 
engage with them and discuss with them, nine times out of 10, you are going to get into seventh day Sabbath keeping. And this is why, because they think that that's essentially what the gospel is. Um, It's not a first Corinthians 15 understanding. They will tell you, obviously, oh, no, 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 we believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin and that he he resurrected. We, we believe all that. But when you start to peel back the layers and really get into the specifics, um, it is the the three angels messages, mm-hmm. which I have an article. I'll post this. I've posted it on my channel before. I'll post it in the comments of, of this video, too, so people can yeah. check it out themselves. Um, an article by, um, well, actually, forget that. I'll just... If you want, I'll just bring it up and read it. Oh yeah, let's do it. So you can, so you can, so you can see what I mean. Um, yeah, this is from the Review and Herald, um, 1934. And Review and Herald, for those that don't know, is an official publication of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Um, and so this one is titled "The Gospel Message and the Gospel Messenger." Qu- well, let me zoom in a little bit here. It's a little small. All right. So remember what we said earlier about. Um, when I was reading that Herbert Douglas write-up, that they believe that this great controversy paradigm was uniquely given to them. So this means that it wasn't, the apostles didn't have this, no prior generations had this. Mm. And Herbert said that it's this that informs how they define gospel, righteousness, justification, etc. So just keep that in mind. <laughs> this is from 1934, November 29. Quote, To the Seventh-day Adventist Church, has been committed this message. The everlasting gospel was preached by Noah, by Abraham, by Paul and Peter, and by all the prophets and apostles of past ages. What they're referring to there in as the everlasting gospel is that phrase that's found in Revelation. They think that this revelation or that this everlasting gospel encompasses not just the death of Christ, but a whole host of other things. It was preached in the setting appropriate to their day. We cannot preach this gospel message as Noah preached it, or as Paul or Luther gave it. It is for us to preach it in the setting of God's great threefold message of Revelation 14. Luther preached righteousness by faith in the setting of the gospel message for the 16th century. So this is what I was saying earlier. They also don't define righteousness by faith the same way that Luther did, ironically. We must preach righteousness by faith in the setting of God's message for this time. We are told by the messenger of the Lord, that's Ellen, quote, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. So it goes on um, and she goes into kind of some of these, or the article does kind of goes into some of these other things. But um, no, it's not the gospel that was once for all handed down by the apostles who had it revealed to them by Jesus Christ and then handed down to the saints over the years through the generations. Mm. Um, It has new aspects to it that were not present in generations previous. So it's this kind of morphing idea of what the gospel is. Mm. Interesting. So do they have a concept of, I'm thinking of things like imputation or like propitiation. Um, What do they think about those topics or subjects? Yeah, so some are going to use that. Then you have to ask, because again, man, they're really good with like Christianese. They're good at knowing how to use the right terms. They've been taught like the right terms. But then when you start to ask them, okay, define that for me. What what does that mean to you? Um, That's when you then realize, oh, wow. So some of them will talk about the imputed righteousness of of Christ. Um, 
and you have to ask them, like I said, what does that mean to you? Um, the more common term that you're going to hear, which is pretty common amongst like Methodist, the Methodist tradition, which Ellen White came out of the Methodist tradition. So a lot of that impacted her theology and understanding. Um, but it is the imparted righteousness mm. of Christ. So <clears throat> I heard a talk. Uh, I don't know when it was from by the general conference president, Ted Wilson. Um, this was actually last week and he was talking about the imputed righteousness, righteousness of Christ. Um, but then if you listen closely to what he's getting at, it's not that there's a great exchange that takes place or took place. Um, the righteousness of Christ is essentially seen as a standard of what is required in order to have access to heaven. Mm. And one has to attain that righteousness essentially to be fitted for heaven. So they're semi-Pelagian in this regard. They don't believe that you can just, like Pelagius said, pull yourself up by the bootstraps of no help and aid, uh, no grace necessary. You can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do it. They're semi-Pelagian in that um, you are enabled, like I was telling you earlier, by the power of the Holy Spirit to essentially be empowered to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. And it is through doing this that the righteousness of Christ is then manifest in you when you begin doing that. So it's not an idea like we have of um, you are given a righteousness that's not your own, that is foreign to you. Um, if you'd like, this, this kind of gets into the investigative judgment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll read to you um, the an overview of, of this teaching. It's a little long. But bear with me, because this gets into all of that stuff. So there is a sanctuary in heaven. They are physicalists, by the way, material physicalists. They don't believe that man has an immaterial aspect to his being. This sanctuary is identical to that of the earthly. In 1844, Jesus entered the most holy place of this sanctuary for the first time to begin what is called the investigative judgment. Prior to this, he was only in the holy place of that sanctuary, doing a work of intercession that was analogous to the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, like in Leviticus 16. They also claim that the investigative judgment is the final phase of Christ's atoning ministry prior to the second advent. This is to say, the atonement was not complete at the cross, but it continues in heaven until this work of investigation is finalized. In this judgment, the record books of sin are opened and the lives of all who have professed faith come up in review before God. It is a judgment only for professed believers. The wicked, according to their theology, will be investigated and judged during the 1,000-year millennial reign. Beginning with the cases of the dead spanning all the way back to Adam and Eve, Jesus is reviewing the life records of every person who has professed faith in God. Every name is mentioned and every case is closely examined. When he finishes with one generation, he moves to the next. Once the cases of the dead are complete, he will move to the cases of the living. None know when. Anyone who has sins remaining upon the books of record, whether unconfessed or forgotten, will have their names blotted out of the book of life. Every sin must be confessed to be blotted out. The standard that all people are judged up against is the Ten Commandments, and their perfect obedience to them, especially the seventh-day Sabbath of the fourth commandment. Some names of professed believers will be accepted, others will be rejected. 
When every person has come up in review, only then will Jesus plead his blood before the Father on behalf of those who are found worthy, and then blots out their sins from the record books. Then, not knowing whether this work has been completed, those who are found worthy, still in their human state, will have to stand in the sight of Almighty God without an intercessor. Mm. This is prior to the second advent. This then completes the atonement. Jesus will then take the sins of God, excuse me, of God's people and transfer them to Satan, who they believe is represented by the Leviticus 16 Day of Atonement scapegoat. Satan will bear the ultimate responsibility for all the sins he has caused the righteous to commit, suffering for them in the lake of fire to eventually be blotted from existence, making Satan the final sin bearer. Wow. So that was a lot, but that is what they believe. So they believe salvation is essentially this. You make a profession of faith and are baptized into the Adventist church. You are given the Holy Spirit now as an aid to help you now or empower you to now be able to do something that you could not previously do, which is obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. You are now put on a period of probation. Mm -hmm. For those curious, go to that website, egwwritings.org, type in the word probation and see how many hits you get, and then test how many times that word's found in scripture. You're put on a period of probation to be investigated, to see if your profession is actually genuine. But the real core thing behind this is actually that it's about vindicating the character of God. So they believe that after this judgment is done, the millennial reign, so they're premillennialists, they believe that the millennial reign takes place in heaven and that it's going to be a 1,000-year a period of the, those found worthy essentially fact-checking God. He's going to reveal and show that he was just in who he saved, he was just in who he damned, He's going to have all the receipts there for you. Like, why isn't grandma here? Well, you'll be able to look and see, well, here's why. Grandma had this sin that she didn't confess or whatever it may be. So it's like a thousand years of God doing fact checking. But you are only given the righteousness of Christ, what Ellen called the righteousness of Christ, clothed in his righteous garment, after you pass this judgment. So it's after you're found worthy and you've been tested up against the Ten Commandments, that you are then given the righteousness of Christ and you are then fit or you will be because you haven't been translated yet, but then you'll be fit for heaven. And then there's going to come a point where still in your human state, not knowing when this judgment's finished, Chris, you could be, you could be a faithful Seventh-day Adventist your entire life, not make it and have no clue. You kept your whole life doing all this. Little do you know, you had a sin that, you were aware it was a sin, but you didn't confess it for who knows a variety of reasons. Nope, it's going to stand against you. If there's any sin unconfessed, you're not going to make it through. So you could go your whole life in this movement, not knowing when or if your name has come up yet, die, and then be resurrected to condemnation because they believe in two resurrections. There'll be a resurrection of the, of the faithful, wow. and they'll be then taken to heaven to, for the millennial reign with Christ. Um, to do that whole work, and then they will return, um, and there'll be a resurrection of the debt of the the those lost, the damned. They'll be resurrected to condemnation. So you could be one of those. Ellen taught that you can't have any security, essentially. That if you if you essentially believe that you have, uh, or if, or if people are taught that they have security, 
that it will produce in them a laziness. It will produce in them. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. And so because of that, she's, she said that you should, people shouldn't be taught um, that they can have assurance. It's only once you arrive at the pearly gates that you can then say, Oh, I made it. Oh man. Terrible. Okay. So there's two things I want to ask you about based on what you said. So, right. No assurance. Um, We're pretty much in a, according to their doctrine, this is the probationary period and we're kind of waiting to see. So how would they respond to two things? Uh, Sin that you're just not aware of yet, or you die before you even the ability to confess that sin. Those are, I mean, I'm just thinking through what you just said. Those are the two things that jumped up to me. God winks at it. Wow. (laughs) That's the answer. That's the answer. Wow. They they don't under so they don't understand too like the depth of sin. You're right. They don't understand the the nature of man. These things are what cause all these problems. They think that sin is only breaking the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so so that's why so many of them are deceived in thinking like oh I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. Right. Um. When in reality it's like you guys don't understand. You you don't understand the depth of your sin. And not just that, even if it was only the Ten Commandments, that doesn't apply to only physical action. It's every thought, word, and deed. You're supposed to love God perfectly with every thought, word, and deed. You can break and violate the First Commandment, for example, by your thought life. <laughs> You're going to tell me you've ne- you never put anything before before God? <laughs> Are you right. praying without ceasing? Right. Are you are you praying literally nonstop with it? It's just like they don't understand the, the real problem of sin. They mm-hmm. don't have an idea of sins of omission mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like if you're committing a sin in ignorance, eh, God winks at it because you're not aware of it. Right. But wow, that's not what the Bible says. So you, you also brought up this idea of Satan being the scapegoat. So... I've heard of, yep. you know, certain atonement theories where Satan, like, we're bought back from Satan's, right, right bondage and yeah, power. The ransom theory. Yeah. This is a little different as it seems what you were saying that Satan, he does what Christ does. I mean, I, I mean, was I wrong in seeing that? No, you're not. Um, I actually just wow. debated this with an Adventist pastor about a month, a month and a half ago or so mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and... It's it's not like the the ransom theory, right? Because it's... in 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 the ransom theory, it's really that it, Christ was paying a payment essentially to free mankind who was hostage to the devil, right? And I, I can't find it in here. I was just going to read you the portion from the exposition of their own fundamentals, but um, I don't want a bunch of dead air. Uh, yeah. So the idea is is that again, the atonement was not completed at the cross. That's where it started. So Christ was the, the atoning sacrifice is what they'll say. Um, mm-hmm. When you ask them about the atonement, they'll oftentimes be like, yeah, yeah, we believe Jesus was our atoning sacrifice. That's what their baptismal vows say. Um, and so oftentimes Christians will hear that and think, oh, yeah, okay, I agree with that. But no, no, they don't believe the atonement was completed at the cross. They believe that that was an initial start and that it continues in this next phase, which is in a work of atoning ministry in heaven. Because Christ is up there with his blood doing a work um, mm-hmm. where he's blotting out sin. So it's not like in the new t- in the new covenant where your sins aren't remembered anymore. That one of the promises is that God doesn't remember our sins anymore. Right. Um, no sins have been blotted out in their system. They are still standing on record in heaven for this investigative judgment. And for those who made a profession of faith, 
and are not found worthy and don't make it through this, all of their sins, not just the ones from the point of profession onward, but their whole life will actually be placed back on them. Those who are found worthy, Jesus will then uh, essentially take the, the sins of those people, which is in his sin-laden blood, and he will then transfer that blood to Satan, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, and that's what will essentially blot sin out. Oh, my. How yeah. is this good news? I mean, uh, I'm just thinking through this. Uh, there, It's not. Yeah, yeah, it isn't. So there isn't any forgiveness of sins now or salvation experience now, right? Because that's is, that's all future, right? Or our sins will be placed on the Satan. Would, would I be correct in understanding that? Yeah, I mean, it, the logical conclusion of it is that now you're going to get yeah. Adventists, obviously, that are going to say, well, no, 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 I don't believe. I mean, I get it all the time on my channel. I get people commenting. And again, guys, you're just out of step with your church's official teachings. Right. Are you the prophetic authority? Mm-hmm. No, you're not. So humble yourself. You need to submit yourself to She's part of the fundamental beliefs. If you claim to be an Adventist, if you were baptized in the Adventist church, you had to affirm these things. So you're out of step with the prophetic authority. Ellen clearly said that a person should not be taught that they have salvation currently because mm-hmm. it will produce in them an antinomianism. And real quick, just since we're, I could either read some quotes on soteriology, which yeah. this other this other category gets into it as well. I was going to say that and sinless perfectionism. Um, but l- let me, yeah, let me do the, uh, let me do the sinless perfectionism ones first. Yeah. And uh, would you be would you be okay with uh, answering some questions from audience? Yeah, totally. Okay, cool, cool. So everybody, get your questions ready, and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I mean, <clears throat> quote: This is from the Great Controversy, the 1888 edition, on page 488. Those who would share the benefits of the Savior's mediation should permit nothing to interfere with their duty to perfect holiness and the fear of God. The precious hours, instead of being given to pleasure, to display, or to gain-seeking, should be devoted to an earnest, prayerful study of the word of truth. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time or to occupy the position which God desires them to fill. Every individual has a soul to save or to lose. Each has a case pending at the bar of God. Each must meet the great judge face to face. So only perfect holiness, sinless perfectionism, is what yields Christ's mediation for you. Mm. Quote, this is from the Great Controversy again, 1888 edition, page 487. How solemn is the thought, day after day, passing into eternity, bears its burden of records for the books of heaven. This is her talking about the investigative judgment. Words once spoken, deeds once done, can never be recalled. Angels have registered both the good and the evil. The mightiest conqueror upon the earth cannot call back the record of even a single day. Our acts, our words, even our most secret motives, all have their weight in deciding our destiny for weal or woe. Though they may be forgotten by us, they will bear their testimony to justify or to condemn. Close quote. Wow. Another one. This is from Christ in His Sanctuary, page 177. This is a book compiled, it's a compilation book 
essentially of all of her quotes on this, this topic. Quote, all who have truly repented of sin and by faith claimed the blood of Christ as their atoning sacrifice have had pardon entered against their names in the books of heaven. As they have become partakers of the righteousness of Christ and their characters are found to be in harmony with the law of God, their sins will be blotted out and they themselves will be accounted worthy of eternal life. So that's the quote what I was talking about earlier, that Christ's righteousness is only given after you pass the judgment and it's only after that that then your sins are blotted out. Mm. Wow. Another quote, Christ in his sanctuary, page 182. Sins that have been repented of and forsaken will not be, or sorry, sins that have not been repented of and forsaken will not be pardoned and blotted out of the books of record, but will stand to witness against the sinner in the day of God. He may have committed his evil deeds in the light of day or in the darkness of night, but they were open and manifest before him and whom we have to do. Angels of God witnessed each sin and registered it in the unerring records. Sin may be concealed, denied, covered up um, from father, mother, wife, children, and associates. No one but the guilty actors may cherish the least suspicion of the wrong, but it is laid bare before the intelligences of heaven. Close quote. So <clears throat> that's just a, a sampling yeah. of the idea of what Christ's righteousness is, how one actually attains that righteousness, um, and what sanctification looks like. It's essentially a, a medieval Roman soteriology. Mm -hmm. You are initially justified and seen as, as righteous, mm -hmm. but then you must maintain that justification based on your obedience to the Ten Commandments, and the Holy Spirit will be an aid alongside you to help you do that. Right. And actually, ironically, it's not actually even just the Ten Commandments. We didn't get into any of this, which we won't because it'd be a whole, again, video in and of itself. But Ellen added far more than just the Ten Commandments. Um, she said that her health message was the right hand of the gospel. Mm. So she said it was actually part of the third angel's message. So this third angel's message is supposedly full of all sorts of things. Righteousness by faith, the way they define it. The health message, um, essentially that if you want to be translated that is, the people who are alive when Jesus returns, they believe that in a, like they'll be translated. They'll be put into a glorified state. Ellen taught if you were alive on the earth when Jesus returns, if you weren't uh, essentially a vegan, a vegetarian, but specifically, um, if you've been sanctified enough, a vegan, you wouldn't be translated. Um, wow. All sorts of just quackery. So. Wow. Wow. All right, so people got some questions, but I had a question. Uh, okay. So who are some of the big names today of Seventh-day Adventism? Doug Batchelor, uh, Dwayne Lemon, Stephen Bohr. Um, I'm trying to think about some more like internet. Uh, Walter Weith, he's like a German theologian, but they're like the biggest ones. So their YouTube channels are Amazing Facts is Doug Batchelor's independent ministry that's affiliated with the SDA church. Mm. Um, Stephen Bohr's is Secrets Unsealed. Um, I think their YouTube channel is secretsunsealed.tv. Um, you then have Mark Finley. Mark Finley has a channel called Hope365. Um, he, I, I believe he was, I don't know if he still is. He was the assistant to the president of the general conference, which is Ted Wilson. So that's another big name. These are the types that you have to go to if you're wanting to learn actual Seventh-day Adventism. You're going to get, like I said, all sorts of SDAs that say, oh, I don't, they're the most doctrinally confused people I have ever talked with. Every person has their own opinion and own theory on everything, yet that's supposed to be a hallmark sign of Babylon. 
Um, but if you want to know what official Seventh Adventist teaching is, you can go to their official teachings, obviously, but you can also go to some of those bigger names like the ones that I mentioned. Gotcha. So, there's some more outside of that, but uh, those are just kind of a, a few. Okay, so Chris Bess asks, what does he think, what do you think of Walter Martin's conclusion in the Kingdom of Cults book since he was willing to say they were not a cult? Well, you need to watch Walter Martin's discussion on the John Ankerberg show. It's on YouTube. Just type in Walter Martin, John Ankerberg, and it's with uh, William Johnson, who at the time, I think this was in this, the 80s. So this was a while ago, but um, William Johnson was the editor of, uh, uh, I don't remember what paper exactly, but he was the representative that was sent essentially. And this was post Kingdom of the Cults being written. Walter Martin changed his position. Hmm. They've continued to try and use the Walter Pass, as we call it, um, to this day, to try and say, see, see, see. No, the people sent from the GC pulled the wool over his eyes. Again, they didn't define terms. Hmm. That's the key with this group. You have to get into definitions because they know all the right language to use for Protestants to hear and or evangelicals to hear and think, oh, yeah, okay, I agree with that. It's not the same definitions. Yeah. When Walter realized this, he post that, um, went on to the John Ankerberg show, and you're going to see that Walter had a very different opinion yeah. um, after this was revealed to him. Yeah. Man, like I said, it just reminds me of kind of like what you're saying with another religion about Mormonism. You, gotta, you have to define your terms because we use the same language, but we mean two different yep. things. Uh, so totally. Yep. Uh, let's see. Question here. Uh, from Susie Q, she says, what does SDA use as scripture? A special translating, uh, a, a special translation, Ellen White's writings, or both? Uh, it's technically both. They're going to go to the Bible, but it's going to be through the lens of Ellen. So they use a Protestant canon, 66 books. Um, we didn't get into this. Uh, they have their own. They've changed it now to say, oh, it's, oh, it's only a paraphrase. They had the Adventist Bible, the clear word. Mm. Um, which they initially marketed as a Bible and still on their Adventist Book Center website, um, still have it listed underneath Bible translations. Um, but of course, because of the blowback and the heat, they said, oh, no, 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 it was only a paraphrase. My dad actually knows Jack Blanco, the guy who um, wrote it. And um, he tries to say, you know, Jack said he, he did that for his granddaughter. But um, regardless, the, the point is, is that it was marketed as a translation. And when I was growing up in the SDA church, that was given to people as a baptismal gift. Nine out of 10 Adventists had the clear word under their arm. Um, Jack just inserted huge swaths of Ellen White into the text, not just footnotes, in the text itself. So um, some of them are going to be using that. I haven't heard many of them use that in recent. They're going to use the, the Protestant canon, but you have to understand that they're going to like just spout off all these proof texts, and it's going to be coming from a standpoint of, they know what Ellen said on this text. So that's the correct interpretation. Mm. And so they think that by just holding to that and saying, that's the correct interpretation, but I'm quoting the Bible. I'm therefore Bible only. You're right. You're right. <laughs> All right. Someone, uh, Sola Scriptura 21 says, uh, to ask you about the health reform, why it's called the health reform, the right arm of the gospel and, and it's important. It's, it has an Adventism. Yeah, so he's a he's a cool guy. He's a former Adventist as okay. well. Um, let me just go to. Uh, sorry, let me just go here. 
I wrote the wrong thing here, sorry. I'll just read uh, some stuff for you now. Um, this is Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 16, 1901, Paragraph 27. Quote, The Lord calls upon you to show your colors. Stand as eternal health reformers, and do not be in such a condition that when you are asked if you are a health reformer, you will blush for shame. Mm. No, you want to say, certainly, I am a health reformer in every respect, and I want to help others be a health reformer. This work is the right hand of the gospel. It is this health reform, this healthful living. This is clearing the way for us right to the hearts of thousands who have nearly killed themselves with the imp with an improper diet. Now let us begin to save them. Close quote. Wow. Um, here, another one. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, page 361. Quote, You should be teaching your children. You should be instructing them how to shun the vices and corruptions of this age. Instead of this, many of you are studying how to get something good to eat. You place upon your tables butter, eggs, and meat, and your children partake of them. They are fed with the very things that will excite their animal passions. And then you come to, and then you come to meeting and ask God to bless you and save your children. How high do your prayers go? You have a work to do first. When you have done all for your children which God has left for you to do, then you can with confidence claim the special help that God has promised to give you. Close quote. So if you have butter and eggs and meat on your table and you pray to God, they don't go any higher than the ceiling. Wow. Another quote. This is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 1, page 486. Quote, the health reform I was shown is a part of the third angel's message, and it is just as closely connected with it as are the arm and the hand with the human body. Hmm. In order to be fitted for translation, the people of God must know themselves. They must understand in regard to their own physical forms that they may be able with the psalmist to exclaim, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. They should ever have the appetite in subjection to the moral and intellectual organs. The body should be a servant to the mind and not the mind to the body. Close quote. So the health message is one of those pillars that I mentioned earlier. This is why they hold their health seminars all around and you won't hear that they're Seventh-day Adventists typically until like halfway through the seminar. Um, it's because they think that this is a necessary work in order to um, be fit for heaven. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Bill Gates would be happy with that message. I mean, but <laughs> that's, 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 that's pretty crazy. Uh, let's see what we have here. Um, this is from Blaine. Blaine says, how would SDAs interpret scriptures such as Romans 14 or Colossians 2 in terms of compulsion to, ho to hold service on Sabbath? So they say that Colossians 2 was only talking about the ceremonial law that was nailed to the cross. The week They claim the weekly Sabbath was not part of the ceremonial law, even though Leviticus 23 says that it was Adventist. Um, and so they say that Colossians 2 is only talking about, in terms of what was nailed to the cross on the Sabbath, is that it was only in reference to the ceremonial law. Um, as I, I, I'm not sure if this person's asking as well about in Colossians where it says to not judge one person who eats um, certain foods. Mm. Um, yeah, good question. Uh, I don't know their official exposition on that. I do know the official exposition, though, on uh, Colossians 2, 14 through 16. Um, and then Romans 14, again, I don't know the official exposition on this. Um, but the common response that I have gotten from a variety of people is that um, essentially Paul was not saying 
uh, he wasn't there referring to um, anything as it pertains to like the law, which the Sabbath is a part of. Um, Paul was talking about matters outside of that. Um, so it's kind of a conundrum because it's like, well, guys, you, you have to make it say something that it specifically doesn't say. Right. Um, if the, they believe that the Sabbath is the seal of God, which we didn't get into this, they think that going to church on Sunday will be the mark of the beast. Right. Um, and so they, it's like, folks, if, if this is the seal of God, then why would Paul have so loosely said to not judge one person who esteems one day over another, right. but for each person to be convinced in their own mind, because we shouldn't be dividing over things like this. Um, this is not something that should cause division, but um, I don't know the official exposition on that one. I'm just saying the answers that I've heard. And then, like I said, I do know the one on Colossians too. So funny enough, I've dealt with uh, Sabbatarian groups in the in the past, uh, Hebrew Israelites, and they take yep. that passage to mean in a positive way. Don't let anyone judge you. Like, keep doing oh. it. It's just like yeah, it's the like, wait. opposite of what it says. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it's funny. New Error wants to know: Have you ever dealt with Forerunner from the Forerunner Chronicles? I, I think it's a Sabbatarian. Oh, or sorry, a Seventh Day Adventist Forerunner seven seven seven. Um, okay, I haven't. All right, so let's see. We got any more questions? Uh, you you already did it, but maybe you can summarize it just for new people mm -hmm. coming in. Explain the investigative judgment or the scapegoat. Oof. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we for for I, I, for that I, person though. We 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 did like talk about it quite extensively. If you want to go back and listen to that. And uh, I'm yeah. sure you have stuff on your YouTube channel that you've uh, done For sure. that people can definitely check out as well. And so, let's see. I think that that is it as far as questions. Man, you want to give your YouTube channel one more time just so people who came in new will be able to go to that as well? For sure. Uh, you can just search on YouTube, Answering Adventism. Uh, and that will take you directly to the page. Uh, new content is uploaded uh, weekly, two times a week, typically on Mondays and Thursdays. Um, this Thursday, we are doing a part two of a live stream that we did last Thursday. Me and two other former Adventists who are friends. Um, both of them are now pastors, obviously not in the Adventist church. So definitely tune into that if you want to watch the rerun of that. It's also on the channel as well. Um, but thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining.